Hi there, welcome to 1823 Podcast. This is a place where you'll find conversations about a whole range of interesting topics with some of the really interesting people at or connected to Liverpool John Moores University. We hope that you'll find it, well, interesting. This is 1823 Podcast. I'm Stuart Arrowsmith. This is episode two, The Forgotten People of the War. We forget the people that they left behind, including a lot of the widows that they left behind, a lot of the women who were left behind, often with children. And one of the common phrases that everyone will recognise that we do get from almost every woman is, you just had to get on with it. They are still largely forgotten. There's still a lot to explore about who these people were, what they really wanted and, and what was driving them. I have every belief that once we are done with this year, the First World War will drop out of memory quite sharply, I think. I think we'll be over it. We will remember them, the words which echo around the country every November, and this year had perhaps an added poignancy as we marked the centenary of the end of World War One. A nation pays its respects to those who made the ultimate sacrifice. But do we do enough to remember those outside the armed forces who were affected by the war? In this episode, we'll talk about those who some say are forgotten, those who've been shunned, and we'll discuss how that has affected them, and whether their absence from the story of the war affects our perception of it. Our first guest is Dr Nadine Muller, Senior Lecturer in English Literature and Cultural History at LJMU, and also the Project Leader of War Widow Stories. You're listening to 1823 Podcast. Nadine, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. First of all, just give us an introduction to the War Widows Project, how it came about and, and what you were trying to achieve when you started it. So War Widows Stories is all about the stories that we tend to forget even during Remembrance. Um, a lot of the time we remember those who have fallen in service for their country, but we forget the people that they left behind, including a lot of the widows that they left behind, a lot of the women who were left behind, often with children, um, not just during the world wars, but during contemporary wars as well, wars that are going on right now. Um, and so what the project does is it records the voices and the stories of those women in their own words so they can tell their stories of war widowhood rather than me telling those stories through an academic lens we want to give women an option to really present their experiences in their own words we work together with the war widows association of great britain and we also work with the three individual forces widows association and we work together with them in order to recruit volunteers as it were who want to tell their story and at the moment we're doing several different things so one of the key things that we do is we do oral history interviews so we actually visit people and talk to them often for a couple of hours and we ask them about their lives one of the most important things is to capture a war widow's entire life both before and after war widowhood because one of the things we want to highlight is that these are ordinary women who encounter extraordinary circumstances so we don't just jump in by asking so after your husband died, what were things like? But we start with asking them about what they remember about their childhood, what it was like. A lot of women, contrary to what people think, don't come from um, forces families. There's often no connection or history with the armed forces necessarily. They didn't plan to marry someone who was in the forces. Um, and so we really start with childhood. We've got wonderful stories then of courtship with their husband very often. Um, when we interview some of the older women, they remember going dancing with their then fiancé, um, and so on and so on. So one of the things we really want to do is highlight that 
these women have identities before and after War Widowhood. When you've gone out and done the interviews, what's that experience been like for the widows themselves? I imagine it's painful in many ways, but as you touched on there, is it a cathartic experience for them as well? I think for a lot of women it is. We prepare our interviewees really carefully, of course. Um, What's really interesting across all the interviews we've done so far is that these women often aren't used to being asked about themselves and their experiences. Um, Very often you will get a quick summary of their lives when you start off and then they think, well, that's that's me done. Mm, (laughs) And then as you ask more questions, um, they really get into the stories of their lives and and get into it in more depth. So I thought that was interesting, that really no one's asked before. Um, So that's always really moving. The other thing is that often women aren't used to talking about themselves. So often sometimes we start the interview and we get a lot about the husbands themselves, um, where they fought, where they served, um, what their life in the forces was like um, and how they died, of course. And then sometimes we have to probe a little bit to actually find out what but how did that make you feel? And one of the common phrases that everyone will recognise that we do get from almost every woman is, you just had to get on with it. Um, all these women get on with it in different ways. Each and every story is different. There's no one war widow story. They're all different circumstances, all different women. There are common themes, but they all get on with it, in quotation marks, in, in different ways. And that's really interesting and moving. Why have they been forgotten in the telling of stories like World War One? Why do, why do we not hear more about the, the people who lost their husbands and who've been left to bring up families? I think there's two very distinct reasons. One is that when we tell those stories, very often, especially World War One and World War Two, those stories are nice because those women were appallingly neglected by the state. Absolutely appallingly so. They got hardly any war widow's pension. It was almost nominal. It was worth more to have the title of war widow awarded if you were granted a war widow's pension because the criteria were very, very narrow um, than it was actually to to get the tiniest bit of extra money. Um, During the First World War and afterwards as well, there was such a thing as the Special Grants Committee which administered those pensions. And they could actually go and check on women and spy on women and if they were seen to have male visitors, if they were seen to be cohabiting, they could have their pension taken away, if they weren't adhering to what were often very middle-class parenting standards, if they were seen to go out at night and enjoy themselves, God forbid, they could have their pension taken away. So that's not a story of pride or heroism that goes with the story that people like to tell of their husbands who died for the country, unfortunately. So while we like to tell the stories of the heroes who died, the widows weren't treated very heroically at all, even though arguably they've paid a price for their country as well. They've paid a very high price, and they are rendering their country a service as well by keeping going and making do. Now, the other reason, I think, that those stories haven't been told is that, as one of our contributors said recently at an event, Chris Tinker, who is a member of the War Widows Association of Great Britain, She quite rightly said that when you have a death of a soldier, because you're talking about warfare and you're talking about battle, technically that's evidence of failure. Because if you're winning a war or a conflict or a battle, you shouldn't really suffer any loss, or at least as little as possible. So a war widow is testament 
to a failing of some sort because that person shouldn't have died. What does that do to them psychologically in the way that they've had to cope with that? It's not just the fact that they don't have the provision laid out for them by the state, as you mentioned, but then that kind of attitude that's displayed towards them and their and their late husband as well. How, how do they cope with that? It's really difficult because if you, if you imagine um, very many wives in the forces, the fact that their partner is in the forces, shapes their lives. It, it can shape where they live, in what kind of community they live. They might live in forces accommodation, for example. It might shape where their children go to school and who their friends are, just like with our jobs as well, who we socialise with and who is in our extended social circle. Now, when your spouse who's in the forces dies, all of a sudden you are no longer a member of the armed forces community, unfortunately. War widows very much should be and are a member of that community, but currently still very often they're not treated as such. So you lose an awful lot, not just often the majority of your household income, still today sometimes, but you also lose the social circle. A lot of the women we've spoken to talk about the fact that when they get together with the wives, who their husbands used to, to work with, um, or the wives of the comrades that, that the husband used to work with. Um, as a war widow, you're all in a sudden evidence that it could happen to, to any of us. And that's really uncomfortable and difficult to deal with for the other women as well. So a lot of women talk about finding new friendship circles, sometimes outside of the forces. Um, but what's really hurtful to a lot of them is that there is no acknowledgement that they've paid a price as well, that their service is actually not being acknowledged. And has that changed over the years? Obviously we're focused on the centenary of the First World War this year, of course, but does that attitude still prevail? Yes, I think it does. Um, I think what happens is that every November we have remembrance, which is really important, and we do remember those who have fallen as a result of war, not just, because of the armed, not just those who served in the armed forces, but all the victims of war. But there are still people who tend to be forgotten, and that is that does include war widows. Now what happens in the media is the media like to focus on maybe a couple of individual stories of veterans too. Veterans are very much in the same situation, I think, um, and war widows. And there will be a camera on the face of a war widow, and I say this very cynically, but this is unfortunately what it's like. Ideally, they would like a young war widow. If she can cry a bit, that's helpful. And then everyone can feel bad on the 11th of November and then forget about it again the week after. Now for war widows remembrance is every day, as for veterans I'm sure it is when they think about those who didn't make it. Um, and that's really problematic still. In the Imperial War Museum in London there is one war widow in the entirety of the exhibitions. Um, and that war widow is just mentioned coincidentally because of her husband. So even those big institutions that are supposedly committed to telling all the stories of war are simply not doing so at the moment. And that's really hurtful. If you imagine you walk into, you were a war widow, you walk into the Imperial War Museum, you don't see yourself. You don't see anyone like yourself. Your story apparently doesn't matter. What are your ambitions now for the War Widows Stories project? Where would you like to take it in the future? And, and how big a role do you think it can have perhaps educating our youngsters in schools about the real story of the First World War? Mm. Well, we'd like to really address that gap in the curriculum and in public history. So we really want to get museums like the Imperial War Museums, who've partnered up with us for this phase of the project, um, 
to include war widows' stories, to include those voices in their exhibitions, in their collections, not just behind the scenes in some hidden away archive, but somewhere where it's visible. So we want to get for war widows that acknowledgement that their stories matter and that their stories are part of the history of war. And alongside that goes that what we'd really like to do is develop some materials for school curricula because those stories of what happens to the women who were left behind don't often get told. Students and pupils get told about the home front, they get told about the women who worked in the munitions factories, all those kinds of stories that are quite popular knowledge by now. You know, there's a lot of focus on women in war. But there is not very much focus at all on war widow stories and what those experiences were. And I think it's really, really important for children to learn what it's like for those who get left behind. That's Dr Nadine Muller, and you can find out more about the War Widow Stories project and hear those interviews at warwidowstories.org.uk. So many women lost husbands who went off to fight in the First World War, but there were also thousands of men who refused to fight and became conscientious objectors. They were regarded by many as cowards, but do we do enough to try and understand why they didn't fight? That's the question at the heart of a new novel just published by Mike Hollows, a PhD candidate and master's graduate at LJMU. Goodbye for Now is set during the First World War and tells the story of two brothers from Liverpool, one who signs up to become a boy soldier and the other who becomes a conscientious objector. So the reason I I wanted to to tell the story, I mean, I've been fascinated with the First World War since I visited the, the trenches on a, on a holiday, which sounds like an odd holiday, but um, I was fascinated with it. We went out there, had a look at Ypres, uh, the, uh, um, the big memorial there. Um, and when I was doing the MA in writing, I wanted to do something outside my comfort zone. I wanted to write something a little bit difficult. And so I finally decided it was about time I wrote this World War I story. And the thing I really wanted to ask was, of the reader, which would you be? You know, read this novel, try and decide whether you would have gone and fought for the war or whether you would have stayed at home and fought against the war. And that was really where that whole idea came from. And did your perspective on that change during the research and the writing of the book? Uh, definitely, yeah. And it went back and forth uh, throughout the whole process. You know, it, took, it took quite a while to write it um, with all the research and you know, making sure everything was accurate and, and, and the depth of character was, was true to, to what they were trying to do. And I, I think I sort of went in more, um, not being sort of militaristic, but I, I've been fascinated with the, the military machinations of, of the First World War and, and military history has been a, a long interest of mine. And so I looked at that and then the conscientious objector character kind of came out of that and I thought oh, that's really interesting because this isn't something that's really talked about a great deal, um, whereas, whereas you know, the soldier was. Um, so the more I researched him, the more I became sympathetic with him. And then the more I researched the soldier, I became sympathetic with what they had to go through. And I think that was kind of useful from a, from a writing sense because it took me on that same journey that hopefully the reader goes on from back and forth, not knowing who I, I really, really support and probably supporting both. But it's, it's a real emotional uh, a journey through that. Yeah. But history hasn't seen it like that, and certainly at the time, Joe's the character who, who chooses not to fight, and I think there were 16,000 people who didn't fight during the First World War. What were attitudes like towards Joe and other people like him at the time? Yeah, um, yeah, about 16,000 people that, that actively objected to the war, um, and that took many, many forms. 
um, you know, there was a religious objection, which in a way seemed to be more acceptable. Those, you know, those, there were Quakers who, who said, you know, we, we don't believe in fighting. And while they, they had their own struggles, um, they, they seemed a bit more accepted that they, they weren't going to fight. Whereas those like Joe, who I, I very deliberately didn't give him that religious um, uh, reason for not wanting to fight because of those who didn't have a religious reason or a primarily religious reason for want, not wanting to fight uh, came up against a lot more obstacles. You know, with the tribunals, when conscription came in, and um, how you know wh- why don't why don't you want to go fight was the question they always ask you, and they were always called cowards. No matter why they didn't want to fight, it was always because of cowardice, and that's how people saw it. Um, even even to the extent that women are on the home front, who you know their their husbands, brothers, sons were going out and being lost at war, were still very much against the conscientious objectors. Not everyone, of course, but a lot of women uh, went around and handed out white feathers to to, be, to men who were still in the country without asking them why they were still in the country. They may have been working in munitions factories and those sorts of things early on in the war. Um, so yeah, they were, they were really not well thought of. They, they became pariahs in their own communities. And of course, nationally, the propaganda was so powerful at the time as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's loads uh, in, in my research, um, some of the books I re- read through, some of the, the posters and things uh, against... Um, conscientious objectors were were quite horrible. You know, some of the things they were saying, and and the artwork often depicted them as, as weak, cowardly people. Um, and I think it took a, it took a huge strength to do what they did and cowardice, may, maybe for one or two out of the, the sixteen thousand. But um, yeah, the, the the propaganda against them, I, I guess because you know it was the war effort. They needed more men to go out and fight. It was it was a you know, it was it was not going well um, for most of the war. They needed more more men, more bodies to go out there, and so they had to had to force these people. I mean, that's why uh, conscription came in. You mentioned the tribunals that Joe has to go through in the book, and we won't spoil too much of how the story goes. But what was the process that somebody in his position would go through? Oh, uh, complicated. Uh, it varied. Um, so when conscription came in, um, uh, an able-bodied man uh, would be required to enlist and fight. Um, there'd, prior to that, there'd been a, a, a bill and um, a form that they could fill in to say they were uh, of over a certain age or under a certain age, and therefore they'd be excluded. But those conditions changed as the war went on, and, and again, they needed more people to go out and fight. Um, so essentially, when people like Joe refused to sign up, he you know, deliberately, I wrote to him, he, he doesn't want to fight, he doesn't even want to be involved. Any aspect of supporting the war effort is, is wrong in, in his books. Some people would uh, go and maybe they'd work as um, uh, ambulance men, stretcher bearers. Um, and so that they essentially went to tribunal, and there were lots and lots of tribunals, um, and there were many here in Liverpool. Um, and essentially they were they were put up in front of a panel quite often with a military officer sometimes the mayor or representatives of the of the local government and questioned why don't you want to go and fight you know what is it makes you special that you're not going to go and support all your countrymen in the fight and the war effort um you know why you know if, if the germans want to do horrible things to us why won't you stand up and fight 
and, and some of the questions were so leading and so almost, we think now almost barbaric you know some of the things that are probably on uh, you know, repeatable <laughs> on, on the air but um, some of the questions they were asked about you know if your if your wife was being assaulted by a German would you would you defend her or would you stand back and do nothing and and it doesn't quite have the same context mm. as, as actually being involved in in the, the fight and the battles themselves but that's the kind of questioning they used and then what were attitudes like when when they come out of prison and when we've got soldiers returning home from war how how did the dynamic work in the society yeah. I think I think largely they were again pariahs I think they were forgotten about um, it probably would have been difficult for them to then get jobs particularly I think um, because the, the world had changed so much and, and jobs you know, a lot more women working in particularly in factories and things like that. Um, yeah, there's still a lot of a lot of change to happen, but I think jobs were very difficult to get. Men, a lot of men coming back from the war had nothing, no homes, no families left, and and those who had been in prison during the war had had a different uh, uh, reality of that. And again, they were pariahs. Their families sometimes probably didn't want to know them uh, because they hadn't hadn't been involved uh, in the war. And I think it's easy for us to now think that at the end of the war, everyone turned around and went, okay, that was a really bad experience. It was a terrible thing. These guys were right for not wanting to be part of it. But I don't think that's that fits the reality. I think even after all those deaths and, and the fact that the war didn't really have a resolution other than the, the treaties that were signed, they still there was still a sort of national sense that it was the right thing to do. And do you think now we're we're a hundred years on? We look back at that period. Do you think enough is done to remember people like Joe and the difficulty of the decision they had to make? And as you mentioned earlier, perhaps how it's then influenced people in in subsequent conflicts. In short, no. I think they are still largely forgotten. I think that's why we're having this conversation. Is that um, there's still a lot to explore about who these people were, what they really wanted and, and what was driving them other than, other than the obvious reasons that they, they felt war was bad um, but to stand up in that environment and, and, and believe in that and, and stand, stay true to those convictions is, is incredible That's Mike Hollows, author of Goodbye for Now Now if we don't hear the stories of some of the people directly affected by the war, what does that do to our understanding of the conflict? I've been discussing that question with Dr James Crossland, Senior Lecturer in International History at LJMU. I started by asking him whether our perceptions of the First World War have evolved over a hundred years. They've changed a lot uh, in academia, but in the general public I would say probably not, no. Basically we have a what's probably best referred to as the futility narrative, which is built up immediately after the war, um, a couple of years after the war in the 1920s when you get the release of the, the war poems lamenting the mud and the blood and the suffering and they harped on the, the pointlessness of it all, the futility, particularly of trench warfare and the fact it never seems to go anywhere. Um, and then that gets built on at a, at a broader level by what happens in 1939 when we get round two against mm. Germany, um, which adds to this sense of futility. 1960s, we get some critical literature, probably the most uh, influential, which is Alan Clark's book, The Donkeys, which posits this idea that the First World War was the story of lions, uh, courageous young men led by donkeys, these stuffy old officers who don't know what the war is about, why they're fighting it or how to fight it, and they're indifferent to the suffering of their men. 
And that informs a lot of public perceptions that I think really kind of come together all these levels, be it the futility of fighting Germany again, uh, the donkey's idea, or indeed the day-to-day -day suffering of in the trench life, that comes together in this country in particular, when in the 1980s we get Blackadder Goes Forth, which I think is still a cultural touch point for a lot of people in their reference to what the First World War is actually about, i.e. futile waste of time, um, lots of unnecessary bloodshed. And I think we've seen that in the centenary celebrations. There's been an awful lot of talk about the suffering, very little attempt made to justify the suffering, and I think it's because at this point no one wants to see justification in it. I think we're content to write this off as a catastrophe. And does that perception stick now? Is it so firmly embedded in our culture that that will remain, or will the passage of even more time allow a bit of distance to, to see the bigger picture? Well, passage of time now that we've got past the centenary, I mean, centenaries are funny like that. They do tend to sort of change things in people's perception. I have every belief that once we are done with this year, the First World War will drop out of memory quite sharply, I think. I think we'll be over it, for want of a better term, um, in the short term. And that might lead to a reevaluation, particularly when we come to the centenary of the Second World War, um, a reevaluation that might open up some more doors to break down the narrative. But, um, I mean, we still, we still hold to a lot of popular narratives about the Napoleonic Wars. Mm. Um, once you once that stuff's entrenched, it's very very difficult to get it out. So um, I, I wouldn't hold my breath on that. And is that unhelpful in terms of understanding our own history? I think it depends on what you think the value of history is. I mean, if the war is or was as futile as as public perception holds, then there's not really much to understand. You just un you just see this as a as a terrible thing, and you file it under the list of other terrible things. Um, a lot of which involving war and suffering and it, that's its usage in, in public memory if you want to go back and try to understand why this war was fought which is you know, the, the big question for a lot of academics the origins of the First World War the debate that never dies um, then it's always worth going back and, and, and looking at it and, and picking it apart so I think it depends very much on, on, on what you want to get out of it if this wasn't a futile war, why wasn't it? Again, it's it's about... That's down to how you want to look at the war and, and in, in many respects it's place in history. Now, if you're coming at it from the perspective that all wars are inherently futile because they are these violent, bloody things that have to be fought again and again and again, then it's, it's the exemplar of futility um, because we are still struggling to this day to get a firm consensus on why it was fought. Um, so that's the first stumbling block. So we have problems at the st at the, with the origins of the war, and then we have the problem of what comes after, which as I say is um, the, the second round of a war that's not only within a generation, but it's also once again against Germany, and it's once again against Germany's Reich idea, this idea that Germany has to be this powerful nation at the heart of Europe controlling continental matters. It's a Nazified version of that, but it is ostensibly why the First World War was fought from a British point of view, at least to contain German aggression. Mm. So there's futility there. But then if you want to look at it as a, from a purely military point of view, ditching the idea that wars are futile, saying in fact that wars might actually be developmental, informative, constructive, then it's the antithesis of futility because it starts as this 
um, fiasco of, of nations trying to figure out how to fight a modern war using, in some cases, 19th century conceptions and tactics. And by the time we get to 1918, British Army in particular has really figured out how to fight a modern war um, with, with the mass of the, the creeping barrage, how to use aircraft, uh, tanks, communications. Um, and that's something interesting in the commemorations is that we, we talk a lot about the Somme. We love talking about the Somme and the, and the mess of the Somme. We love talking about Passchendaele, which was you know, mm. catastrophically bloody, a victory, but catastrophically bloody. Um, but we don't talk much about Amiens, which is you know, one of probably the greatest British military triumph of the last hundred or so years. Um, we don't really seem to want to celebrate that, and I think it's because we're, we're nervous about celebrating anything that looks like triumphing militarism and, mm. and, and giving that um, credence. But if you want to look at it from that point of view, there's a lot there to, to pull out that seems worthy and worthwhile. Mm. In this episode, we're talking about people who've been forgotten in the mm-hmm. war, whether it be the war widows or people who perhaps get written out of it like conscientious mm-hmm. objectors. I mean, firstly, do you agree that those people are, are missed out of the history of the First World War? And, and secondly, as a historian, how much of the story are we missing by not by not acknowledging their role in that time? Well, I think that, I mean, we're at the point now when it comes to looking at warfare historically, where we are looking at warfare not as what happens on the battlefield, but as, particularly in wars like this, total wars, we have to look at the forgotten voices. We have to look at um, the, the wives and the mothers who are left on the home front. We have to look at the returned soldiers who are disabled and traumatized. Uh, we have to look at the children of those soldiers as, as you know, there's all manner of people who are left out. Um, and I do think that, again, in the, in the sort of scholarly world, there's been an awful lot of work done on that. And there's even been work done on conscientious objectors. Um, uh, I was just reading something the other day, actually, only the other day, a couple of weeks back, that was about conscientious objectors within the ranks of military medics, uh, these healers, who were of a mind to say that, you know, we don't want to go with the army to help repair broken bodies because we are by doing that we're helping the, to prolong the war we're mm-hmm. patching people up sending them back out to fight and possibly die um and so there was a conscientious objective movement within mili- uh, military medical ranks that got snuffed out very quickly once the war began proper and 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 there was a, a commitment and an engagement to to fighting it through so those voices have been ignored to certain extents, but there's been a lot of scholarship, particularly the last couple of decades, to really bring this stuff to light. I'd probably highlight the work of um, Richard Van Emden, who's spent a good number of decades looking at a lot of the memoirs and diaries and letters that were overlooked in the 1920s, or, or perhaps even longer, been up in someone's attic for decades, um, of soldiers, particularly British soldiers in 1918. And his work in particular has highlighted how a lot of these soldiers, this this monolithic view we had of soldiers seeing this as this absolutely awful thing that they would never want to repeat is, is not entirely true. We get some very interesting sort of hidden opinions within established voices, if you like, of soldiers actually having some enthusiasm for the war once it starts moving in 1918 and we get out of the trenches. And that's an interesting um, nuance to a pre-existing narrative. So even within established narratives and established histories and sources we can find different perspectives there's still plenty of work to be done but it is ongoing and do you think the actions of people in the first world war like the conscientious objectors has that 
Has that informed people's attitude in subsequent conflicts? I mean, the, the number of objectors went up massively into the Second World mm-hmm. War, and we mm-hmm. see now the the objections to any conflict that we look to get engaged in yes. in these days. How big a role did that actually play? Well, I think it's part of a, a, a process that really can be stretched back right to the first time when you get mass public engagement in war, which I would say would be the Crimean War in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. You get... MPs speaking out during that war against the British involvement in what's seen as an unnecessary conflict. Um, you you don't get conscientious objectives as we'd understand it today, but you do get peace movements rising up at a local level tied to broader transnational networks who are trying to advocate for soldiers to stay home, uh, to refuse service, that sort of thing. And, and that builds, um, and it, I mean, the First World War is part of that process in that it, it builds that consensus that, as you say, we have today, which is to basically the prospect of war we look at very skeptically. I, I think that's been a, a trend that's increased, you know, in the last 100, 150 years with each passing generation. We become more skeptical about war, about its utility, about whether or not uh, we as individuals should be sacrificing our lives for a nation. All of these things have been whittled away at to varying degrees by conflicts. And I do think the First World War is a big part of that because it involves so many people. That's Dr. James Crossland. And that brings us to the end of this episode of 1823 Podcast. Thank you to our guests, James, Mike and Nadine. Thanks also to Michael Humphreys, our producer, Ben Jones, our editor, and to Ryan James, an LJMU alumnus who's kindly provided the cover art for the podcast. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope you'll check out our other episodes. Eighteen twenty three podcast.